the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Fetty. It is Monday, August 7th. Big show today. Double guest show. Always good to have people to bounce some ideas off of. We're going to start with one of our old friends. It's been almost a year since we've talked to Emily Karen from Sportico. Big women's sports um, beat reporter, journalist, investigator, all the works. She's doing it all. Um, and a big college sports advocate as well. So we're going to talk a twofold conversation here. We're going to have a U.S. Women's National Team conversation and the money involved and how that connects now with USA Soccer as a whole, what FIFA has to say about that, where things are going, and the trickle-down effect from what they have accomplished financially and what other women's sports are trying to accomplish in the same regard. And then we flip the switch to this chaos that is college football and the super conferences and the consolidation and the money behind it and the future behind it and where we're headed and what it means for other sports and what it means for universities and for college athletes and everything all encompassing that Emily brings to the table. So we start with Emily Karen from Sportico and then Dan Soman joins me, not for baseball this time around, but for football. Uh, live on spytrack.com right now is the 2023 NFL quarterback contract tiers piece. Dan and I discuss some of the greatest hits in terms of uh, players on expiring contracts, players looking for the big contract, players on the big contract and maybe looking for it or maybe set to get out of that contract and the unicorn that is Kyler Murray for 2023 and 2024. That's all next. All right. It's been a long time, but we're uh, happy to have Emily Karen back. It's been almost a year, Emily. Uh, Still with Sportico, still working the women's sports beat there, uh, doing great work on covering things, unlocking things. And uh, the women's sports are back in at the top headline, right? In terms of the U.S. women's national team. Um, not what we, we were looking for in terms of the, the total success, but there's still conversations to be had. You've been doing some great work on Twitter and at Spartaco.com, but some pieces surrounding this. Welcome back to the show. How are things? Thank you. Things are good. Yeah, it was uh, obviously a heartbreaking weekend yeah. for any U.S. women's national team fans or uh, kind of soccer fans in the U.S. more broadly, but uh, I feel like we just set such high expectations for that team that... Uh, you know, the the landscape is just growing increasingly competitive, which is a great thing for women's soccer. Um, so definitely still some uh, some positives to take away. No question. And, you know, a lot of the attention somewhat negatively now, unfortunately, is all the work that's been done with this team specifically and, you know, on a broader scale, but kind of deriving from this team is the financial aspects, right? The, the equal pay that was secured a couple of months back um, and where this is going, not just with soccer, but with many of the women's sports. I think there's a, hopefully there's a trickle down effect that happens here. Uh, and it's kind of what you've been covering for the past couple of years. And I think we'll continue to do so here. So um, you've posted some numbers in terms of what's going to be taken away from this U.S. Women's National Team and how it combines with the men's team now and how that all works. So if you don't mind just laying that whole process out and throwing some numbers at us, that's kind of what my audience is looking for here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very on brand for you guys. Um, <laughs> but the uh, FIFA upped the prize pool for the Women's World Cup this year to uh, $110 million. There was some more money that was thrown toward federations and supporting kind of um, planning and preparation, but there's $110 million to be divided up between the participants. Um, about $10 million of that, just over $10 million of that, 10.5. It's going to the winning team. Um, the U.S. ended up walking away with $3.25 million for exiting in the knockout round. And this year, um, as I'm sure you saw, FIFA kind of earmarked part of those prize payments specifically for the players because there are so many women's national teams that do not have contracts with their players still. So some of these players walk away from a tournament like this and don't get anything or, you know, just get kind of their expenses covered. So FIFA was trying to rectify that. Um, So technically knockout round, round of 16 exiters get, you know, the Federation gets 1.87 million and then there's $60,000 earmarked per player. All of that total comes up to 3.25 million. In the U.S.'s case, because of the women's and men's team CBAs and the equal pay agreement, um, the women will actually walk away with more than that. So they have the green light from FIFA to kind of operate under their own protocol here. Um, So what that means, and this was what, uh, you know, was the end result of the lawsuit and the CBA signed shortly thereafter, is that that money the women's team earned will be pooled with the money the men's team earned in Qatar this past year. 
they both exited in the round of 16. Uh, they both kind of made it through the group stage and ended up leaving. The men's team took home 13 million for their performance in the men's World Cup um, for advancing just as far. Women's team gets that 3.25. So that 16.25 million is kind of put into one pot. Uh, for this World Cup cycle, U.S. soccer will get a 10% cut of that, and that will support, you know, federation initiatives, training, coaching, all of those things that the federation covers. And then the rest of so the 90% that remains is going to be divvied up between all the players. Um, this is getting really in the weeds, but women's national team rosters can have up to 23 players. Men's can have up to 26. So you have 49 players total, and it ends up being about $298,000 per player that they will get paid. Mm. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you here. I, I think, I think <laughs> yeah. this is at least a good starting point, don't you? That, that these two worlds are colliding a little bit and you know, one team's success can kind of help the other team's success. It's, it seems like a good country approach. Is this completely unique to the FIFA Federation? Is this literally a one-off or have other countries adopted this to some degree? Yeah, so this is completely unique. Um, there are other countries that have adopted sort of equal pay arrangements with their players and their federations in terms of the pay they get from their federation per cap. Um, but equalizing the FIFA World Cup payments, that's obviously the biggest disparity in prize money between men's and women's professional soccer. Um, you know, the, the prize pool for the women's tournament, even though it was significantly higher than any previous iteration, is still a quarter of what is awarded in the men's tournament. Um, this is also the first year that FIFA has kind of sold the women's tournament as its own commercial entity from TV rights to sponsorship packages, ticket sales, like the whole thing. Um, so in theory, the tournament this year uh, is going to cost FIFA about $500 million. They said they're going to break even, which means they're going to generate about $500 million in revenue. So in theory, you know, going through this for the first time, that means the next go around, they'll be able to kind of fine tune things and make even more money off of it and hopefully increase those payouts. Um, but, you know, it's probably going to be a while if FIFA has admitted this. Um, the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, has said equal pay for the prize money at the World Cup is obviously the end goal, and they would love to get to that for the next World Cup cycle. But realistically, they're not confident that's going to happen. So it may take us a few more World Cups. But in the interim, this is sort of the, the United States stopgap solution, if you will. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of criticism, I think, from casual fans or people who are in the, the camp of, you know, you should be paid what you're worth. But the reality is we don't really know what the women's team is, uh, the women's team and the women's tournament is worth because this is the first year that FIFA has ever really tried to figure out. Um, so this is a... a probably a temporary solution. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure the next round of CBAs, they will reconsider what the different prize pools look like in these international competitions and go from there. Um, but, you know, obviously the men's team players and women's team players both agreed to individual CBAs with these terms. So they're all on board with what's happening. And if you look at an instance like the last World Cup cycle where the men's team didn't qualify for the men's World Cup, this arrangement actually would have benefited them. Right. Because... The women won it all that year. And even though they only took home $4 million, you know, that's still more than $0. Okay. So there's a, some give and take, but I think it's it. On the whole, this is what was needed to equalize kind of the biggest inequity in international soccer. No question. And I, I don't know, I'm completely, I, I mean, I'm a huge follower. I'm, I'm a big, we're a big soccer family over here. Um, so it's, we're going to be watching no matter what. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the round of 16 disqualification is going to hurt in terms of the general interest, especially in the interim. But um, mm. it seems like and, you know, I've been doing what I do for over 15 years here and I, I've got, you know, the people that I follow on the socials and things like that. It seems to me like and maybe you can concur there was more interest from random sports fans. It seems like more people were talking about it. I was the crazy guy up at 5 a.m. and 4 a.m. Eastern here, and it seemed like there were a lot of crazy people with me, at least on the socials. So, I, I, I like I said, I don't know if that's going to deflate a little bit because of the early exit, but um, I, it, it appears to me that there's more and more interest growing. Um, obviously, the streaming and, and things like that is a big part of it because it's available and, and there's a lot of promotion for it. But uh, where do you stand with that? Do you think there have been actual steps taken forward? You can leave all the negative comments that have been made since then out of it. But, you know, where are we in with the overall general popularity, not just of this, but with women's sports? Because I know you cover everything, Emily. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think you are seeing a huge increase. I think the early Fox numbers of the, the women's team's first couple of games showed that same, you know, an increase in audience despite this massive time difference uh, between Australia and New Zealand and, you know, the East Coast and the United States. Like you said, people were up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. watching these games, um, which, you know, I, I always... I'm curious, you know, if this tournament had happened in a better time zone for U.S. fans, right, those numbers would have been even higher. Um, and we haven't even gotten into kind of what the replay numbers were and whatever else. But you're seeing that across the board, right? You're seeing that in the NWSL. You're seeing that in the WSL in you know uh, England with their top women's soccer league. You're seeing that even in the WNBA. But you're also seeing attendance uh numbers and sales increase across all of these leagues as well so this is just a you know we feel like we've been talking about this kind of moment of momentum behind women's leagues for the last you know two three-ish years now um but the world cup obviously being the pinnacle of the global game right the biggest most popular sport in the entire world i think is just one of the more obvious um and clear examples of that on a global scale I would totally agree. Uh, it seems like obviously the TV and the streaming um, networks and, and, and packages have helped immensely. Uh, the availability is there. It seems like I have more options than I've ever had in terms of viewing and, and attending women's sports. And like I said, I, I'm just kind of reading the room a little bit. And I do think it, it has really helped. I, I think some of the people that need to be talking about this stuff have been talking about this stuff. And I know that's going to make an impact. So, I, you know, this is a disappointment. I, I, you know, I, I think even a semifinal appearance by this team could really have, have swung momentum in a bigger, bigger way. But uh, I do think an impact has been made. And by the way, I'll put some of that on, on people like you who spend a heck of a lot of time getting this stuff out there and putting numbers to it. Because uh, when it's not just, you know, objective, when it's actual data, uh, you know, um, I stand behind that 100% as being a positive step forward. So, uh, all right, let's switch gears to the chaos that you and I love to talk about. And I don't know that it's ever been more chaotic than it's ever been. <laughs> um, where is your head with college football um, taking you away from the women's sports scene a little bit here? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a very interesting fall. Um, I think the Pac-12 obviously has a lot to figure out this year none of that is going to come, you know, we're not going to see any of that on the field or in, in conference games right away. Um, you know, we've got sort of another year buffer there, but I think next fall will probably look very different um, to what we see this year. Um, I think there's a lot of adjusting that fans are going to have to prepare for um, that conferences are going to have to get ready for from a business perspective. But um, I think the teams, especially that are kind of migrating to new, new conferences or new schools will probably really try to, to, to make a name for themselves, um, yeah. this year, kind of on their way out and sort of, uh, establish a presence, if you will, before they, they make a major move, but it's going to be interesting for sure. It's, uh, our, one of our, my, my peers, our legal analyst, Michael McCann did a really interesting column this morning, just about how all these super conferences, right? There's all of these decisions are so business motivated and not just, you know, small mom and pop shop. Like these are big business decisions that are being made and how that just really kind of wrecks the NCAA's case for amateurism. Yeah. That I thought that was a, just a super interesting way to look at it is like, you know, going into this fall season, people are so worried about, you know, where their team is going to play, who they're going to play, or that's going to do rivalries. But like, there are so many undercurrents here that have significantly uh, bigger implications in the grand scheme of how the NCAA operates. I'm going to imagine he's taking the angle that these are now employees or are, are trending towards being employees. Is that where he's going? Yeah, I think he's saying it's a lot harder to say that, you know, this is not big business when right. super conferences are forming to maximize billions of dollars in TV money. Yeah, I think it's totally fair. I, let me throw a little uh, a wrench of a question into what you're saying, which is, again, most of these changes won't happen until 2024. Some, I think, are actually 2025. There's a lot of time until then. And, and you know they're going to work to schedule and do all the things that have to happen to keep the games happening and keep the TV money coming in. But do you, do you think that the current model of college football from even just the, you know, the playoff, the bowl, et cetera, standpoint can exist? Or are we going to get to a point where things are going to have to change because these super conferences, A, either, a, either don't want to talk to each other anymore or B, there's no real logical way to continue doing what we're doing when 20 teams are competing for a division or a conference or whatever it's going to be. You know, I, I just have to imagine structurally something's going to have to give here in the next 18 months. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one, the cultural playoff is obviously set to expand. Um, that will kind of create a little bit of wiggle room. I think you probably definitely open the door for more conversations about automatic qualifiers versus sort of wild card spots or different, uh, you know, spots in the playoff being earned through other means um, or, you know, these super conferences getting more than one automatic qualifier. So logistically, yes, there are a lot of changes. Obviously that's easier to do and to navigate within an expanded college football playoff, but especially with these super conferences, the expanded playoff, right, you're just going to see even more money coming in. And so those super conferences are going to have kind of even more, sway in these conversations given that you know they're likely going to be the ones kind of you know supplying the teams that drive all of this where are we headed with most of the schools that didn't get pulled into a big conference at this point in time (laughs) um you know they're, they're not being talked about too much i mean the stanford's of the world and some of the bigger programs you know will always be in conversation and quite frankly i think they could exist on their own as notre dame if they wanted to but um you know, there are a lot of schools kind of getting pushed by the wayside. And by the way, there might be a couple of schools that are in these conferences right now that may get pushed out at some point because they're not, you know, holding up their end of the bargain. To me, that's that's perfectly plausible now as well, right? If you can bring them in, you can kick them out. So I, I have a feeling that uh, will other sports start to benefit from this? Will, will reallocation of money internally start to happen? You know, will women's sports actually improve in some areas because of this whole conversation, because of the, of the consolidation of college football? Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point, right? You think about, I think the Pac-12 is a good example here, right? The the Washington States, Oregon States, those schools that have kind of been totally omitted from these conversations um, and what happens with them because, you know, a lot of these schools are very leveraged in terms of their athletics debt. And they made those decisions under the assumption that they were going to have, you know, power five, quote unquote, revenues coming in. But if you are a Washington state or an Oregon state and you end up kind of in a a mid-tier conference or you end up, you know, no longer in one of these super conferences, the the money you're going to be getting from your conference distributions in terms of media rights is going to be dramatically different, Um, which obviously impacts uh, kind of how many sports you can support. Um, and you know, obviously sports that are high revenue generating are going to be the the priority there. Um, then you get into title nine complications and it's just a whole mess. Um, but I think to your second point about, you know, if, if you're brought in, you can also be kicked out. Yes. But also a lot of these schools kind of have the security of a grant of rights to at least hold them over for X number of years, depending on the conference, um, or kind of guarantee them some financial security if they are ousted sooner than that. Um, I don't know that I can think of a time that a conference has kicked <laughs> a school out before its grant of rights expires. Um, so, so hopefully there's some security there, but I think at the end of the day, conversations about these super conferences, it, you know, as they continue to kind of bloat their numbers, you're driving revenue. Um, and, and regardless of who is driving that revenue I, in, in the sense of what sport, if there's more money coming into an athletic department, my hope would be that that means there's more money to support mm-hmm. other sports. There are more donors willing to kind of invest in women's sports or Olympic sports or sports that don't necessarily drive the most donations. If they know that the football team has, you know, plenty of media money coming in to support growth and new facilities and whatever else that's going to be kind of the next uh, run in the ladder that all these schools are going to continue to climb. I spend all year working on player buyouts and dead cap. And I, I'm just imagining a world where I'm going to have to start tracking team buyouts. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, <laughs> Like the, the cost to get Vanderbilt out of the SEC. I can't even believe that's somewhere where we're headed, but it's not inconceivable by any degree right now. Um, I'll get you out of here on this. Yeah. Is this a positive thing? I mean, I, we know that the TV money is, it is what it is. And live sports has never been more popular and more cost effective. You know, it, it's just as big as it's ever been. The NBA has got $70 million players now. Uh, it's not slowing down. And obviously the college football community knows this and is doing this for a reason. Is this a positive thing for the most part? Or is this from a business standpoint, all encompassing, right? All these other sports, the, the actual universities themselves, us as fans, is this a positive step or do you see more cons than pros here? I think it might be too early to tell. Okay. Um, I think once we get, you know, a couple years of these new conferences under our belts, 
and people are able to see how much money is coming in and where that money is going, I think then you can have a better sense. Um, Obviously, one of the fears here is that football becomes so dominant and so professionalized and then you have legislative changes or NCAA changes where revenue is redistributed only to players or athletes who are on revenue producing sports. And that obviously takes funding away from, you know, a large group of women's and Olympic sports in most cases, you know, that is obviously kind of the the doomsday-ish scenario here is that, you know, these super conferences actually turn football into basically a professional enterprise um, to the detriment of other sports that they support. That said, you could also, you could see this playing out on the flip side where if the NCAA kind of can figure out how to, maintain an active presence in these conversations and in these decisions. Um, And even if football is kind of spun off into its own commercial entity, if the money is still coming back to the athletics department and being distributed in a way that supports Title IX, supports equitable opportunities, then I don't think it's a bad thing. Does that make sense? It does. It always does. (laughs) It's always great to hear from you. You're always uh, so on top of everything you're covering and, and even a little bit more. So I always appreciate your time. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, of course. Happy to hop on anytime. All right, Dan, let's switch gears from our usual Major League Baseball talk, though we've got plenty to get to on that spectrum. Um, I took some time this weekend and finished up this morning. It is now live on Spotrite.com, the 2023 quarterback contract tiers. It's kind of our version of this listing, ranking, organization process that goes on all offseason long with many of these other outlets. Um, I think it's unique because I'm not looking at so much so the production on the field or what happened last year so much. To a degree, that's part of this process, Dan, right? It's the common sense angle. But for the most part, it's me looking at this contract that I've read a thousand times for most of these players and just evaluating where the heck this thing is right now and where it may be or will be next March when a lot of decisions have to get made. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason. I create these categories on the fly. Some players need their own category, as we're going to talk about in a second here. Um, but for the most part, I, I hope this is new and fresh every single offseason. This is my third edition of this quarterback contract tiers. So welcome to the show. Uh, I, I hope you've browsed it. I, I sent it to you a, a while ago. Anything that stands out immediately as either dead wrong or interesting and a good place to start? Honestly, not really. I think everything that I see here is pretty much on par so i i think um i okay. I, I, I suspect there's a couple guys you want to talk about um some you know more nuanced stuff with um so yeah. i don't know was there stuff was there anyone that you debated making this list because it, it does seem oh, pretty yeah. straightforward to me so <clears throat> it, that's a pretty decent way to take away from it uh it was one of the easier years to do this and i'll start with why uh, the locked and loaded which is kind of the annual carryover category which is basically these guys are locked in either on a on a first round rookie contract that's not going anywhere for a while or a veteran extension that's not going anywhere for a while. The, the, the only criteria I have for locked and loaded is you've got to have more than two years fully guaranteed to make this category. It's a big list, right? It's, you know, it's almost, it's more than a third of the league in terms of starting quarterbacks right now. We've had iterations of this, you know, and it's a cyclical world where that's a, that's a very small list. We, we're just in a, in an iteration, in a cycle of the NFL right now, where a lot of elite quarterbacks are paid, um, so that made this easier, right? It was a no-brainer to put the the Josh Allen's, the Justin Herberts, the Deshaun Watsons of the world in this list. And then, like I said, there's, and again, I'm speculating on starting quarterbacks to some degree, but Anthony Richardson, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud are added to this list with their brands making new rookie contracts. So, in that regard, you know, it was nine or ten players right off the bat you know, locked it, tucked away into this category. And then it gets more interesting. Let's, let's talk about the second category, um, which is locked, but ready to reload. This one, I haven't had too much because generally speaking in the middle of August, the guys who need an extension have an extension right before training camp starts before, certainly before preseason games start. Most of these starting quarterbacks are are done and out of the way. It's just kind of good business from a team perspective. And you know, there's a safety or there's a running back or there's a wide receiver kind of trickling in that needs a late extension trending toward the new season. Um, but I, I think these three players at least are still in the conversation for a contract right now with Joe Burrow being the big one. Do you think, Dan, that the calf injury has slowed the conversation for Burrow or it's just taking time? Um, 
I would, I, I tend to think it's just taking time. I think, um, I mean, there's been a lot to be, there's been a lot said about, uh, even from ownership there about how they're going to fit all of this together. So I think they're trying to get creative. I mean, I don't think there's any long-term concerns with the calf injury that would, would complicate things here. So I just tend to, to believe that, um, they're trying to construct a creative deal, um, that gives them room to work in the future in you know, a quote, small market, if you will. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I totally yeah, agree. No. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And, and obviously this team likes who they are. They've extended a couple of defensive players in the past couple of uh, days here and Henderson and Logan Wilson. So it, it just seems to me like there's a pecking order, right? The mixing contract got restructured. That was a, that was a priority because to me, if that doesn't happen, he's gone. And then it's back to the drawing board. They've got to go after Delvin Cook or Fournette or one of those players sitting out there right now. Um, so that got done. They took care of some defensive players. Here's my last question on the Burrow situation. Do you think that the Burrow conversation and the T. Higgins conversation are going to happen together? Or do you think Higgins is left by the wayside for 2023? Uh, that's a good way to put it. I Because I, I, I guess what I was alluding to saying that they're trying to figure out how to make this all work is in conjunction with the T Higgins deal, or if, if that is even possible um, to get those both done together. Um, I guess I would throw that back to you. Like, do you think they can make that those both happen this year or would it be smarter business for them to space them out? Um, like, like maybe I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm assuming a lot, but maybe they go to mm-hmm. T Higgins and say, listen, we got to get Joe Burrow done first. We're going to lay it out like this. This is how you might potentially fit into that. Here's our range, et cetera. Like there, I, I would, I, I just assume that there's some type of open negotiation unless there's a line drawn in the sand that the, the Higgins deal needs to get done now. Um, I think it would be probably smart business for the team, um, you know, to, to line them up, but I, I you know, yeah, it, it's that. a good conversation. If I had to play agent slash GM and kind of sit on both sides of the stand, I'm keeping the Higgins contract unsigned as I negotiate with Burrow because those two are very linked up here, right? Obviously speaking from, from a production standpoint, one kind of needs the other and vice versa. So it, it's about me, you know, the Bengals coming to Burrow and saying, you got you to take a little bit off the top here so that we can make sure that the Higgins situation sits for two or three years. And then conversely, if you want Joe Burrow throwing you the ball and not, you know, Mac Jones next year, which is very real, right? Then you're going to have to take, you know, 19 million a year and not 22, which is kind of the going rate for that number two wide receiver. And uh, I don't want to want to get off the path too far here, but the bigger conversation is, should teams have two high paid wide receivers at any point in time? I, I just don't know that that's a thing, right? It hasn't worked for the Chargers. I guess it worked for Tampa, but not really, right? The Godwin deal came after the fact, and Evans was was kind of on the expiring at that point in time. We just haven't seen two high-impact players get contracts within a six- or ten-month span at that position and have the team be successful for the next two, three years. So um, if I had to guess, uh, it's a Burrow contract announcement and not a Higgins announcement. They do have some rollover cap space that could afford them the opportunity to use a franchise tag next year. There's a world where that happens. Um, but I, I don't think that the Higgins conversation is going to get anywhere in the next three weeks or so before uh, week one, which is going to be interesting because that's a nice free agent to at least have hanging out there. Yeah, I agree. And I guess I should kind of half step back. I, I spoke about that situation. Like, I think it's likely Higgins gets done. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's more likely he walks and they focus on a chase extension um, going forward once they have Burrow locked up. Um, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. um, Dak yeah, Prescott. Let's move to the Cowboys who have their own wide receiver contract situation in CD lamb. It's kind of funny how these are all lining up here. Um, I imagine lamb gets done. But maybe not. You know, I I wonder if some of these other contracts that are being announced from Dallas are the plan. Let's get the the three or four smaller deals done in 2023 and worry about the Prescott and CeeDee Lamb situation simultaneously next March. We've seen Dallas do this before and kind of and by the way, you know, also the left guard, right? Uh in Zach Martin. Not a cheap contract that he's looking for in terms of what his restructure might take. So 
we've seen Dallas do this before where they, where they do everything at the same time. And it sounds like it's the right idea, but it's the, it, to me, it's the absolute wrong approach, especially with positions of power. Um, it's why I think having Burrow done this year and Chase done next year and et cetera is the, is the better approach. The Bills have an extremely well thought out, staggered contract structure right now for a lot of their core players. And it's going to benefit them when, you know, most of these players come up soon for let's talk extension. Let's get out of this $70 million cap hit, et cetera. If the, if Dallas does this again and puts four contracts this off season and three contracts next March, basically within a six month span, they're just asking for, a, you know, another dead cap disaster. And, and this time it's not going to be 40 million for, for one year in terms of a total dead cap hit. It's going to be 140 because of where these contracts are now. So, um, are you doing Prescott right now? There's some reports that the talks are still happening. Um, and obviously the concern is that there's a $60 million cap hit sitting for next year, which the longer you wait, the more damage it's going to take in terms of restructuring and things like that. I'm not sure. I think it gets done. Uh, there's just the way they've handled this whole situation really throughout his career, That's even right. the, la- the last time I, it seems like there's concerns. Um, or at least question marks on the organization side um, if and how long they want to move forward with him. Um, mm. So I, I think this one might be more unlikely uh, in my opinion, but is there a world where this becomes a Ryan Tannehill scenario where he's on an expiring contract? They got to take care of the cap hit a little bit, but they want to actually get to the finish line with him. Yeah. Good comparison. Probably. Right. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, Mahomes, there's $415 million left in this contract and he can have it all from early guarantees if he wants it. Um, but the, the negotiations seem pretty out loud, pretty public that things are happening and there's discussions of how he can be the next Tom Brady in terms of contract structure and all that. I mean, he's saying all these things out loud. So it's not like I'm making this up. I, I don't know. Where do we get with this? Right. Kelsey needs a new contract next year, in my opinion, because it's just ridiculous where that tight end market has gone. Some some of the defensive players, there's a cornerback that needs an extension. The inside linebacker they drafted is definitely going to need a rookie extension next year. So, you know, it's not like this. Everybody's just going to sit around and wait for Mahomes and his new contract. And, you know, everyone else on the team is looking at his current contract and saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Right. But the way it was structured, you know, he only got 65 million over the past three years. And I'm not crying for him because that's still a hell of a lot of money but not in comparison, right? It's one of the worst quarterback extensions we have on the, on the books right now in terms of early money. So he thought he was doing everybody a favor, but really what he was doing was torpedoing this contract out of the gate. And now they got to kind of clean up that mess. And I don't know, do, do the chiefs have to bend and break on every element of this? Do you think they have, they do have nine years of leverage here in terms of term, right? He... <laughs> When you put it that way, I know it's an ugly way to put it. And I realize the guy's a superstar and he's, you know, basically walking into the hall of fame backwards, but they did. He did sign this contract, Dan, you know? Right. And theoretically, like the whole Tom Brady conversation is a conversation because he made some money at the, he did make money on the front end of his career to some degree, right? Like it's not like he always took a discount and punted money down the road. Um, And both of them have had a plethora of, of commercials and they're public figures that are making a lot of money out of the game. So there's some similarities, of course. Right. When you, when you say they need to almost overcorrect for the past year, years though, like I, I agree with you, but I struggle to figure out how they're going to do that when they seemingly, um, are kind of up against the cap every year. And with it, with, you know, elite talent on that roster comes major, major contracts. So the, the fact that they're kind of piecing it together every year and even, as soon as like, I mean, as recent as last year and the year, you know, as soon as let's say, as soon as Tyreek Hill left town, mm-hmm. the the weapons, you kind of look around and say, well, who's really here and what investments are they making in anything besides Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes? Um, yeah. The Patriots comparisons are ridiculous, right? I mean, that was the yeah. conversation for forever with that team. So it's all kind of right there. They have the book that they can read and go off of. Um, and then I guess if we're taking that Brady route, what's going to happen is, is this Mahomes contract is going to get torn up and he's going to start looking a lot like the Kirk Cousins contracts, 
which is I'm going to take three years fully guaranteed. I'll tack on two years in a year. I'll tack on two years in a year. I'll tack on two years in a year. There'll be a signing bonus every other year, every two years. And the cash flow will be adequate, but you know he'll never be a top five paid player in the league again. He'll be a top 10 paid player and uh, you know make a ton of money elsewhere and hopefully win a bunch of ball games because that's what you know great players should do. But to me, that's where it's headed is it's, it's going down the Kirk T, Kirk T. Cousins path and not so much these other young guys that are looking to get you know add six or seven years to every contract. I love it. I, I hope that's the route this goes. But again, he signed this contract. <laughs> he signed this contract. So uh, I hate him for doing that. I really do. I, I can't believe that this guy with that pedigree, with that resume coming out of his rookie contract, decided that 10 for four or 12 for 480 was the best way to do it when the league's making a billion dollars every month right now. But he did it. And I just think the Chiefs shouldn't you know, completely spin their wheels to get this thing as Patrick Mahomes friendly as they as possible because I don't think that's good for the league either. So um, we'll see. I, I, I do think this gets announced before the regular season. Do you agree with that? I guess I didn't really think that was – I thought it, this was going to kind of stretch into the year, but I, yeah. I'll lean more on your opinion there that, and I'll watch out for that because it wasn't necessarily something I was expecting to get done before the, the year. Yeah, and I apologize if that is a public – the, no, 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 it's not. It's I, me. It's conjecture by me. The, the, I guess the way I'm reading it, Dan, is is what better way for the Chiefs to start this season coming off the Super Bowl than the quarterback takes a massive haircut, right? And, and he and he trims down a nine year contract into a two year extension, a two year restructure extension, similar to what we went through with Rodgers right now, right? The Rodgers PR is excellent. It's got everybody pumped about the Jets and where they might be over the next two years. The Chiefs could generate that exact same kind of thing September first with a brand new Mahomes contract that's going to have all the Brady comparisons that just sets them up to be a dynasty. So I'm just reading the the PR side of it. And I think it's a, it's a great way for them to go. No, I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to watch out for that now. Cause I, it was, that would have caught me off guard previously. So. <clears throat> all right. A couple more names. I'm not going to go through all these because again, this article is live on spotter.com. I spent way too much time writing it. So I hope you read it. That's my, that's my plea <laughs> to the public. Uh, we got to get to Kyler Murray, who's got his own category because he is locked in um, for quite a while. I mean, he's got an early vesting guarantee on all salaries through 2027, uh, which every time I read that, I vomit in my mouth because I can't believe he has that contract at all right now. He should be he should be playing out a fifth year option right now with a question mark about if his extension is ever going to come. Uh, but he's not. He's fully guaranteed basically through 2027. And, you know, the the tank is real. You know, I'm not making this up and either other media outlets talking about this stuff. They're going to be bad. They're going to be like a three-win team. Is that how you read it too, Dan? Or for is there the, a sneaky world where they... <laughs> no, I think they're going to be bad for the most part. I just, I think some of the number, like that line is mm. expecting Kyler to either miss some time and or not return to... Um, his previous form. I think there is a world where he comes back and surprises us, um, which could lead to a few more wins. But when I say that, I'm talking maybe the line moves. Maybe I, I'm thinking of the line is five or five and a half, something like that. But that's the ceiling outcome. We're talking about a team um, that has very few paths to being successful. So, but the but the overarching point here is there's a world where they're a top two lottery pick. Because for sure 100 yep, um and you can still control that destiny right so, correct, correct so they yep. can, there's a world where they can get themselves in position for one of these very very highly touted college prospect quarterbacks and and then what the heck do we do right and by the way we've seen them do this before they did it with kyler murray and josh rosen now kyler murray is better than josh rosen you know nobody's gonna gonna not say that out loud he is now i don't know if he can stay as healthy um, but certainly when he's out there and doing his thing, he's a good quarterback. He's a, he's an above average quarterback for the most part. And there's all this money. There's all these four, you know, four and a half years of salary guarantee ahead of this thing. It's an ugly trade. It's an impossible release. I mean, there's just no release happening here. So it's going to have to be a trade. And the last time a number one overall pick quarterback was, you know, was traded with a prospect being drafted behind him in mind, it was Baker Mayfield. And that didn't work out at all. I mean, Cleveland ate basically everything to get this guy off the roster for nothing. They got basically zero in, in return for it. It was simply just 
get this off our roster and, and pay some of it down, please. And by the way, Baker was still on his rookie contract on a fifth-year option. Nothing to do with a four-year salary guarantee on a vet extension. So I can't even imagine how ugly this would get. I guess the only question I can ask you, Dan, is do you buy into this? Like if they're in the top two and the Drake Mays and the Caleb Williams of the world are sitting there for them to be had, are they actually taking them? Or are they going to use those players as leverage to acquire an absolute boatload of draft picks and reset themselves in that regard? I th- I think new newish regime there. I think they would not pass up the opportunity to sort of reset wow. there unless they unless they really. But but to to kind of backpedal slightly, you you laid out how difficult it is to get out of this Kyler Murray stuff. So maybe if that regime thinks that they can work with him, and maybe the issues were mm-hmm. previous GM, previous coach related, then. Yeah, there's. I think the smarter option is to just go with um, sort of what you already know. But if we're talking about, uh, you know, potentially, I mean, generational prospect is, is thrown around way too much. But you know what I mean? Like a high end quarterback do. prospect is there for you to take pretty, you know, your roster is set up for that. I, I just, I don't know. I, something about how this has all played out really with his whole throughout his whole career, even when it was sort of a question if he was going to sign with the Oakland A's or play football, you know, this like goes yeah. back with there, with the there were so many Cardinals. red flags, weren't there, Dan? I, I just can't believe he's in a contract right now. I, I really can't. Me either. Even before he signed that extension, a lot was yeah. a lot of rumbling. So right. I remember the video game stuff, the 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 homework stuff. How much does he actually read? And you know, is he is he act? Does he actually like football? And actually, like, is he engaged? Then the clause built into this contract. There was just so much out there. There's so much involved with this. And they not only did they cave on the early extension right after three years, they gave him one of the. It's most str- the strongest structured extension I'd, we'd seen to date until Herbert, truly. And, you know, Watson notwithstanding. But it's a better deal than Allen got. It's a better deal than most of those players. Jalen Hurts got. The, the guarantees that he'll get because of the early vest are insane. So not only did he get the extension, he got all the stability he could ever ask for and more. And I, I, I just think you and I are in lockstep here. I, I don't know how you move this. So is it going to be a Steve Cohen type buyout? Truly. I, I, I don't know right. how you get this player off of your roster next March. I, I guess the answer is you don't. And you might have to pay a $39 million backup quarterback is really the answer. Or throw Kyler Murray out there knowing he's going to be replaced in 2025 and sit Caleb Williams down and Patrick Mahomes redshirt him for a year. But what, what version of Kyler Murray are you going to get then? You know what I mean? Like if if Kyle, if he knows he's going to be replaced and there's already some character issues with this kid, what's it going to look like then? So I, I just can't find a world where any of these conversations come to fruition. So I'm going to answer my own question with, I don't think they take that quarterback. I, I don't think that, I don't think even new regime can look at this situation like I do through these goggles and say, it'll, we'll figure it out. It'll, it's, it's just going to work itself out. This is too much. This is too much to overcome financially, um, contractually. There's not a there's not a bailout mode here. So they're going to have to pass, in my opinion, on one of those generational players. But they'll still get what five draft picks from it, probably right? Three firsts or two firsts, three seconds, something to that accord. So it still makes sense for them to tank the crap out of 2023 and, and get right. into those one of those those power spots. Um, and they may actually better be better for it. You know, maybe they can put together a roster of young, cheap talent that overcomes whatever Kyler Murray deficiencies have existed and will exist in the next couple of years. But this is one of those situations, Dan, where there's no other tier group out there. There's no other article out there that looks at Kyler Murray this way. You know what I mean? Because they're just going to replace Kyler Murray on their on their tiers because of what's being said, because of the new regime, all the all the points that you brought up. Um, that's how most people look at the Cardinals. They're they're tanking. Players are retiring. They're taking on a ton of dead cap. You know, DeAndre Hopkins wanted the hell out of there. It just looks like everything's about to crumble. But Kyler Murray's contract isn't going to let that happen at the quarterback position. So they're gonna, there's just going to be a point where that rebuilding is going to have to stop because Kyler Murray is too damn expensive and his contract is too damn good. So I'm going to hold tight on this one. I really hope I'm wrong. 
because how how fun how fun's it going to be on January 5th or around there when we find out that the Cardinals are actually going to be in one of those one you know the number 1 or number 2 spot and the conversations right Caleb Williams and the USC is just blowing it up whatever's going to happen I just want that all to exist from a content standpoint from a, an interest standpoint because at some point in time somebody's going to do something drastic like we just saw the Mets do in baseball which is buy out a player for $90 million cash just to start over because the quarterback position is that important. This There's an opportunity for this to happen. You know what I mean? Like like my rich billionaire owner says, I, this guy's got to go and it's going to cost me $90 million cash to do it. Let's just do it because I don't want this guy playing quarterback for us anymore. It's hurting our brand. So I, I'm rooting for that from a content yeah. standpoint, but it's just so unrealistic, right? I mean, it likely is, but I do think this might be the perfect storm considering the player's yeah. past, the organization's relationship with that player, um, the potential to have a um, elite, uh, you know, re- immediately replace him with an elite player on a rookie contract and then build yeah. around that player going forward. I mean, it, it's it's a very sexy um, route to go like that. It's just how do you get rid of that contract when it seems like it, it's completely um, swimming upstream. I, I, this might be that scenario that the Cardinals just say, we're going to, we're going to be the, the ones to do it. But I, I do, I do side with you. I think it's in, in, incredibly unlikely that that mm. happens. <clears throat> um, let's just keep going down this rabbit hole. One more, one more step because it's fun. Let's say it happens. And it's probably not likely until after 2024 because of the cat, the numbers we're talking about. But let's just say it happens in February. Kyler Murray is outright released. There's no trade partner. They know where their draft pick's going to be. He's just outright released. All right. Oh, let's just say they make it a post June 1st for purposes. But um, and he takes his 90 to 100 million dollars, and he and, and he looks around the room. If you're Kyler Murray, are you trying to find another job in the NFL? Are you going to baseball? You know what I mean? Like, are you are you even trying to come back as a quarterback in this league after that embarrassing release? Because that would be the most embarrassing historic release in the history of the NFL, without question. Uh, I, I mean, I see your point. I have trouble. I have trouble getting on board as this player gets older, coming off of a pretty significant mm. ACL injury, like. Development in baseball is Gotta play I, like, outfield. Think, yeah. He, he was a former top pick. Like I get all that pedigree is there, but baseball is still a very difficult event developmentally. Um, mm-hmm. Kyler Murray, in my right. opinion, you're I saying think he would, you're saying he's not going to walk off an NFL stage and go to the, and go to double a right when in <laughs> like, I, I think what you were trying to hint at before saying he looks around the room and sees like three for 90 or something like that, that, that contract is almost guaranteed going to be available for him if he's released. <laughs> right. I mean, the quarterback, yeah, Garoppolo, right. Yeah. So, some team is saying, we'll give that. We think the, the Patriots think we can fix this player and any shortcomings that he might have yeah. um, to give to take a risk on a short-term contract. So that's why I, I understand the, like the, the, you know, Mm. the embarrassing you know release all, all of this circumstances around that i just think if he the easiest way for him to stay you know re- remain mm-hmm. a professional athlete in po- my that's opinion. right yes yeah, yes yeah. yes yeah it's just no, no question starting over in baseball is just an impossible uh you know road uphill but um man getting released this early even if it's after 2024 that's some kind of shock that, yeah, that's some it's a kind really- of tremor and a really interesting thought, Pete. I mean, we that's a fun little thought exercise to play out there <laughs> with right. this kind of player. Let's roll through a couple more names and get the heck out of here today. Again, this is live on spotrite.com right now. The 2023 quarterback contract tiers. This tier is called the Future Departed. It's two names. You know them both. One is Kirk Cousins. One is Ryan Tannehill. They're both entering 2023 on expiring contracts. It sounds like Cousins and the Vikings tried for an extension and didn't get there. We've heard nothing about Ryan Tannehill in a new new contract. And they've tried back-to-back years to draft his replacement in Malik Willis and Will Levis. And neither sound like they're even close to taking over the reins yet. So I'm just going to ask a simple question. Are, are, is, is Kirk Cousins in Minnesota? And is Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee next March? 
I, I want to say no. I could see one of, I, I think 50, 50, one of these players, one of these teams will look around and say, we might be better off um, mm-hmm. with him than without him. I lean that that being Minnesota, but I also can, I'm, I'm not confident in that either because I, I, I lean towards neither of them are back because I think Minnesota, if they don't like kind of take a step forward with Kirk Cousins this year, they're going to look around and say, "We, what are we doing here? We've seen this, uh, you know, year after year, sort of similar with Ryan Tannehill and you just invested in Will Levis. Like, I, I think that they would be um, willing to move on there. So I, I say that I, I definitely don't think both are back with their teams. I think it's possible one is back leaning Kirk Cousins there. I think it's most likely that neither are back, but do you feel the same? I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to say they're both back. And Interesting. A, I think it, one more thing to note with the Vikings, everything you said is correct. Well, two things. A, they should win the division, right? So there should be momentum with that team, in my opinion, coming into you know January, February with Justin Jefferson and, and you know whatever else kind of you know players take a step forward to keep cousins because you just don't want to, you know, d- destroy things too much right now. And there's not, his replacement is not in this roster. So you're talking about a, a veteran signing, you know, that's not Kurt cousins and, or some kind of earlier on draft pick. And they just haven't hit. It's just not been their thing right over the past couple of years. And certainly that's the case with Tennessee. And if Will Levis doesn't practice himself into a, any kind of favor, and it sounds like it's been awful t- to start, but he's going to have all year to figure this thing out from a you know a brain and a physicality standpoint. If he doesn't, where are they going next? Possibly Kirk Cousins, by the way. Th- these two teams could be talking to each other at some point. Um, so I-, I just think both teams look around the room at the end of the day and be like, look, we tried. Or I'm not even sure Minnesota tried, to be honest. I mean, Kellen Mond's already gone. That was their attempt. He's gone. Uh, you know, Tennessee has certainly tried. I'm not sure any of them have a better answer right now. And starting over from scratch with a draft pick that's coming in two weeks or in two months, right after free agency starts, that ain't a, that ain't a great way to start an off season with a team, you know, with a with what could be a Justin Jefferson gigantic blockbuster contract on the books. You know, they've just signed Hopkins in Tennessee. There's a world where they're at least trying to patch things together still. So uh, my answer is both return on small little extensions, Cousins being much larger in terms of overall value than anything Tannehill can secure because of the the production he's able to put up. But um, I just don't know that the teams have any other options right now. So I I, I like that Cousins said no, to be honest, because he's done this before, right? He's put pressure on his team to go and find my replacement. And when you don't, I'll take another two-year full guaranteed extension and we'll we'll see where we go from there. So I I think it's, it's trending in the right degree. Similar conversation, but I've got him in a different tier, Dan. This one's called playing for the bag. There's four players there. The only non-rookie contract is Jared Goff because he's got two years left. Generally, it's a good time for to start talking about an extension if you're worth it. And that's my question. Do you think that right now... And, and I'm not saying he's going to get the contract this offseason. I think it's going to be next February. Do you think that Jared Goff right now is worthy of an extension, a new contract in Detroit? Um, I think, I guess, let me, let me just ask a a qualifier here. Does that, this is not an extension like next man up Jared Goff to get deserves to get paid. Right. We're not talking like that type extension. This is just a, if the top of the market's 52 soon to be probably 55 with burrow here, 42 to 45 a year is kind of above average. (laughs) So so if I'm telling you that, you know, he might make two for 90 on an extension, four years total here, or, you know, three or four years total, I, I, that's kind of the going rate for an above average starting quarterback, especially with his pedigree. He does have playoff experience and all that stuff. He's not playing like a top 10 quarterback. He's kind of, you know, a top 15 guy, and that's always been his thing. But I don't think you're going to get a player... To, to, to stay away from free agency for anything less than that. You know, Danny Dimes, Dan, yeah. Daniel Jones just got 82 over two, you know, and I don't think he has anything on his resume right now. So uh, that's just where we sit. So if I tell you he's got 52 million left over the next two years, Jared Goff, maybe he agrees to play for this, you know, the 26 million this year, but I don't think he's going to do it again. 
if that team you know wins a couple more ball games and some of the offensive pieces start to tick, he, he's going to have to demand forty five million a year most likely. So with that in mind, does Detroit jump on that? Kind of a Ryan Tannehill, you know, in Tennessee situation, right? It's kind of they rebirth his career. It's looking like he's going to be at least a, a fit in the in the offense, but certainly going back to the draft is a cheaper way to do it. So where did where does Detroit go with this? Yeah, I guess why I phrased it the way I did before is I have trouble getting on board with Jared Goff as a forty plus million dollar contract, mostly considering the fact that I I think he's very situation dependent, right? He's in a pretty mm. favorable offense with a really great up and coming offensive coordinator who I think there are some concerns how long he'll, the, the, he'll be with the lions, like how long they'll be able to retain, retain him. He's going to, if not next year, the following off season, he's going to be probably one of the more coveted head coaching names. If, if um, they kind of continue on the path we saw start last year. So I, I know exactly what you're trying to say. I think Detroit could revisit that. I think there would be some major concerns there, though, on the viability that he he, he performs the way we've seen – we saw last year under – in a different situation, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I guess I'm just I – I guess I we just saw the floor on Jared Goff be so low that – it's hard for me to get that out of my mind in terms of him being paid as a top 10 quarterback. But the, the, the facts you laid out is probably all, um, you know, going to go into the equation that he will, he will probably command an extension like that. And I just will have to get over, you know, I, I just, to, <laughs> I just mentally have to upgrade. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Detroit's done this in the past, right? These numbers are just saying- in a, in a territory that it's, it's hard to comprehend sometimes that, you know, a non, I know non elite quarterback is making that much money, but you're right. That's the market and the market is the market. So I know it's, it's where we're headed. There's going to be a breaking point. There's no question, but big decisions for a lot of these teams this off season or this coming off season Two uh, one question, two players in one combined question. We'll get you out here on this. It's more likely that the Packers buy out, Jordan loves 2024, which is a five and a half million dollar guarantee, or the Raiders buy out Jimmy Garoppolo's eleven point two five million dollar 2024 guarantee. I'm just going to assume for for purposes of this game, this exercise, that one of those two players gets bounced after a disastrous 2023. It's perfectly plausible, and there's just a cash buyout. We're seeing more and more of this. We're seeing more and more of this pump some guaranteed money into a year. We don't even expect to keep the guy in and we'll just give the guy some cash on the way out. There'll be some offsets into it. So when Jordan Love signs a one-year $5 million contract with Tampa Bay or something, now we're only paying you know $500,000 instead of $5 million. So there's, there's actually some pretty good uh, intelligence behind it. But let's just assume those two players for this exercise are on the chopping block after 2023, which team is more likely to move on. I think the Raiders, I think that roster is um, kind of at a breaking point. Like this is a really um, pressure point year for them. And it sounds like things aren't going well um, where things could really fall apart there. I think there's a world where Jordan love is okay enough that, that we, I know, I I mean, I hope I'm not misquoting you, but I think you like the Packers roster a lot and the quarterback is kind of the main question mark there. So if he sort of exceeds expectations here, um, there's a world where they show uh, he shows enough that they want to bring him back um, on that cap number, which would be good for a, uh, a starting quarterback, right? So um, I'm going to lean Jimmy G there, but I I understand that we haven't seen Jordan Love, and that could look terrible. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think Garoppolo is the bigger outlier. Certainly, there's a physical side of it too, and, and you know, again, I'm I'm reading the same things you are, and a lot of the 49ers people are saying, "Calm down, he did this with us too." And then he got into the, the regular season and, and the offense just kind of ticked. And my response to that would be Kyle Shanahan ain't walking through that Raiders door right now, right? I mean, exactly. Uh, but here's the other side of Jordan Love. The way they structured this little deal, which is basically two for 13 with a ton of incentives, it, it's five and a half million in 2024, which to me is just an overpaid backup. So there's no reason to move on really with at any point with Jordan Love unless he kind of comes to you and says, get me out of here. 
You know what I mean? I, I want to try. I, trade me somewhere. Let me let me try somewhere else. It didn't work out here. It's, it, it's just you put me in a bad spot and it didn't work out. But otherwise, even if you go and draft a kid or sign somebody, taking Jordan Love on five and a half million as a number two quarterback, you know, we've seen players worth 30 million. Sam Darnold, right? Baker Mayfield. We've seen players sitting on, on benches right now worth $30 million. So I think it's unrealistic that the Packers have any motivation to move on from the money that sits there right now. Now, look, some of the incentives could pile up a little bit and the cap number might get a little bit you know, more daunting. But uh, to me, it's Jimmy G right now. He's maybe the most question-marked veteran quarterback in the league. Um, but there's plenty of young guys to put in, in the camp with him as well. All right. This full article is live on spytrat.com. Dan, we got lots more quarterbacks left to talk to. Um, maybe a fantasies perspective conversation here soon. But we'll talk baseball as well. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. See you.